This is the Global Crossroads podcast. Each episode will bring you stories about global issues such as climate change, violence against women, fundamentalism, migration, and the rise of right-wing populism. The show is hosted by Chrissy Stroop, Deidre Sugiuchi, and myself, Deepak Singh. Welcome to episode two of Global Crossroads. We're very excited today to host Mona El Sahawi, who is a very um, dynamic and powerful social media personality, journalist, commentator, writer. Uh, we'll be talking about some of the uh, themes that she addresses in her forthcoming book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, which is going to be released on September 17th. And um, we're really delighted to have her here. Welcome, Mona. We're so excited to have you. Thank you both very much. I, it, it's been wonderful to follow you both. And Deepak, I'm a newcomer to Thank your you. Twitter account, so I'm also looking yeah. forward to getting to know you more through Twitter. Yeah, I think one of the things that I would like to touch on today, um, and hopefully the rest of you would as well, would have to do precisely with social media and how we can can use it effectively uh, for hopefully the kind of advocacy and activism that can make change. Uh, but I thought maybe we might want to start today with a discussion of um, certain current events that have to do with white supremacist patriarchy and who is allowed to be angry and who is allowed to be violent in our society and, and who is not, which are big themes in um, Mona's forthcoming book. Uh, of course, I'm talking about these two major mass shootings that happened within 14 hours of each other uh, just the other day in El Paso, Texas, where the shooter did create a manifesto repeating a lot of alt-right and, let's be honest, Donald Trump talking points about uh, racial replacement. Um, so maybe we can start with just a few comments about what's going on there and how your work might speak to it, Mona? I think it's vital to begin with what happened over this weekend because I see that a lot of people are talking about this horrendous, hate-filled uh, white supremacist manifesto that the El Paso shooter left behind, and we should be talking about it. I think we should also be talking about the manifesto, even though it is not described as such, effectively left behind by the Dayton shooter, Dayton, Ohio shooter, because we now know from his high school friends that he had created a kill and rape list that got him suspended from high school, and that more recently he was a member of a porno grind band in Ohio, um, the songs of which um, talked of raping and killing women, and he's been quoted by BuzzFeed and Vice as uh, hating women and being a misogynist. So I insist that we say that the Dayton, Ohio shooter left behind a manifesto of toxic masculinity. And that connects him ultimately and must connect him to the El Paso shooter because these are both white men who are the, the, the kind of the, the awful examples of white patriarchy. One of them is a white supremacist patriarchy that's the El Paso one, and the other one is um, a, a result, a product of another kind of ideology, and that ideology is toxic masculinity. And I connect both of these violent murderers to Donald Trump because we have a man in the White House 
who is himself a white supremacist who has incited violence against people of color and who himself is a sexual predator because he's been accused by at least 21 women of sexual assault. And that's how we must connect what happened this weekend. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that all that all makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's an extremely disturbing couple of cases, extremely disturbing that we simply have this pattern continuing in the United States, and there seems to be nothing we can do to stop it. I mean, at least now, the New York Times is actually calling it domestic terrorism and using that word terrorism, which we used to reserve only for Muslims and brown people. But I'm not sure it's going to really... I'm not sure what we can do to finally put an end to this if Republicans keep obstructing every attempt at gun control and so forth. In your newest book, The Seven Necessary Sins, you talk about power and you talk about the power um, that white women give away when they don't speak up. What, I mean, what, what can we do? Right. I, th I think what we can do is start saying patriarchy more start saying white um, start saying white supremacist patriarchy more start talking about toxic masculinity and insisting that we connect all of those things because what we're seeing is yes white women giving away their patriarchy in ex I mean sorry white women giving away their power in exchange for uh, uh, proximity to a white patriarchy that tells them we will protect you essentially from men of color and then we have to ask in exchange for what obviously for the women who vote for Donald Trump um, what they get is um, they get um, proximity to white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and they're allowed to be as racist as they want and for the women who do not call out toxic masculinity we have to remember the case of the sister of the, the shooter in Dayton Ohio. She was one of the first people he killed. So these men, they pretend, they they uh, ostensibly are out there protecting white women against the rest of us, but in exchange for what? And that's one of the questions that my book insists we answer. So you um, started this work in the wake of a sexual assault. Can you discuss the context of this and other assaults and how they are connected to both sexual violence enacted against women worldwide as well as the violence that we're seeing right now? Right. I think where um, the things that inspired my book are connected to what happened this weekend is that too often what we call white feminism or liberal feminism um, recognizes um, the kind of the injustices that happen to women elsewhere. And, mm -hmm. and also the supporters of Donald Trump who come at this from a very white, su white supremacist and Islamophobic way are also very good at recognizing the kind of misogyny that I have written about for years. And that's the kind of misogyny and toxic masculinity that went into the first sexual assault that inspired this book. And this first sexual assault happened in 1982 when I was 15 years old, when my family went on the Muslim pilgrimage known as Hajj, which is about to happen right now in Mecca, which is the holiest place for Muslims in Saudi Arabia. We went on pilgrimage when I was 15 years old and it was the first time in my life when I was sexually assaulted and I was sexually assaulted twice, once by a man who seemed to be a fellow pilgrim and the second time by a Saudi police officer. So that was in 1982. And I've written and spoken about this many times. And in February of 2018, I learned that a young Pakistani woman called Sabika Khan had written about her own sexual assault in Mecca, in Saudi Arabia, 
on Facebook and that even though she got a lot of support, a lot of people called her a liar. So in order to show solidarity with Sabika, I again shared my own experience in Mecca in 1982. Sabika's experience was in 2018. So again, I, again, I shared my experience and so that we can claim hashtag me too for all of us and not just powerful white women in Hollywood. I said, let's start talking about what's happening under hashtag mosque me too. So I started this new hashtag and it went viral very quickly. So that was in February of 2018. And five days after that, I was in Montreal, Canada. I was then at the time 50 years old. And instead of being in hijab as I was during pilgrimage in 1982 in Saudi Arabia, here I am now at the age of 50 in a tank top and jeans in a club in Montreal. And I was sexually assaulted by a man on the dance floor. So I took those two events. And after that, I began. So after this man sexually assaulted me, this is the, the big difference now. At 15, in Saudi Arabia, I froze and burst into tears. At 50, in Montreal, Canada, I beat the fuck out of this man. And, and it was glorious, and I loved it. <laughs> and, I, and soon after, I started the hashtag, hashtag, I beat my assaulter, which again, very soon uh, went around the world. So I used those two hashtags, and I used those two experiences to connect sexual violence around the world, because when I was sexually assaulted in Montreal, Canada, it was not a Muslim man, it was not in a Muslim space. It was not in a sacred space. It was in a very secular space called the dance floor. So those are the things that inspired the book. And, you know, I, I would love – one thing that when I was reading Headscarves and Hyman that was so interesting to me was the um, religious abuse or the sexual abuse enacted upon women, you know, in, in, in you know, Muslim culture or different cultures. It's so – it's the same thing that's happening in in Christian culture, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I and I feel like in the United States, at least for me, being raised, you know, fundamentalist Christian, you know, there there's a double standard, right? And and only now are we beginning to recognize like patriarchal abuse in the church here. Uh, absolutely. Uh, which double double standard are you talking about there? Deirdre, the oh, there's so many. Know, there's gives, so many. Gives, uh, you know, men more leeway than, than women are the one that means we talk about these things when they happen to Muslims, but not when they happen to Christians. Both. Both. <laughs> that, I mean, <laughs> that, well, and then also just the fact that if you are a woman and you are assaulted, and Mona talks about this in both of her books, like, the victim is always a fault, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or a person that's assaulted. If you are mm -hmm. a person Speaking. who's assaulted. Speaking of which, Mona, were you at all afraid that you would be arrested for assault in Canada when, when you beat up your attacker? Um, I, I wasn't, but I was fully ready to be arrested because that guy had it coming and he fucking deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> Mona, I have a question for you. I wanted to ask you, uh, what was your trajectory um, as a writer? Did, did you always write or... Did you become a writer later in life? Well, I, I first decided to become a journalist when I was 16 years old, uh, a year after my family moved to Saudi Arabia from the UK. So I was born in Egypt, but we moved to London when I was seven. And when I was 15, we moved to Saudi Arabia. And I speak in both my books about how that move to Saudi Arabia essentially traumatized me into feminism, because that's what Saudi Arabia does. It, it traumatizes you into feminism. And so a year into it, 
um, I, into this trauma, um, I vowed I would become a feminist. Uh, I would become a feminist. I already was. I vowed I'll become a journalist because journalism for me symbolized freedom. And I did become a journalist when I moved back to Egypt in 1988 when I was 21. And for several years, I worked for Reuters news agency, first in Cairo, where I covered um, issues in the Arabic-speaking Middle East and North Africa. And then I moved to Jerusalem, where I covered the Palestinian issues out of the, the Reuters office in Jerusalem. So um, Palestinian issues among the Palestinian community with Israeli citizenship um, in what is called Israel, and also Palestinian issues on the West Bank and in Gaza. So that that I spent many years as a journalist, as a kind of like strictly defined news reporter, 10 years. And then I moved to the US in 2000, and the 9-11 attacks in 2001 rendered news reporting and so-called objectivity completely obsolete for me. I just gave that up completely, and I decided to become an opinion writer because I wanted to start saying I and I wanted to start sharing my opinion. So that's, that was kind of like the, traje the trajectory and the evolution of my writing. And then um, soon into that kind of the saying I and the opinion writing, my, my opinion writing became more and more kind of like front and center feminist. It was always feminist, but it also had the kind of the news reporting. He said, she said, I was covering Palestinian Israeli peace talks. I was talking, I was covering the Egyptian regime and its torture. But, but a, a few years ago, I, I decided that my writing would just resolutely center the destruction of patriarchy effectively. Uh, I wanted to follow up on one point that Deirdre made earlier, if we might, and, um, you know, ask about what what you make of the fact that we often do see sexual assaults occurring in spaces uh, like churches, like mosques. Um, you know, would you care to comment on the abuse scandals that have been breaking in the Catholic Church, very strict hierarchical patriarchal structure, women excluded, that have been coming out for decades now? Uh, more recently, the, the many... Protestant, particularly evangelical Protestant abuse scandals that continue to break. Uh, you see patriarchy as a, as a universal thing. Do you think that, um, what role does religion play in, in patriarchy as, as we see it in, in different societies around the globe? Right, I, absolutely. I, I mean, I could talk about this with you all for hours because I think it's absolutely essential to what's happening. So when I started hashtag Me Too, I was I was also inspired by hashtag church too. And I was really inspired by the women who, who started speaking of their own assaults. Many of them, um, we all follow, they're, they're mutuals of ours on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And um, they've been essential to, um, to, to my kind of like viewing the, the role and the, the double standards that Deirdre was talking about earlier. Because many of the people who know very well um, the kind of abuse, the sexual abuse that happens in either Catholic or white evangelical spaces um, are much happier and, and more at ease pointing to abuse that happens in Islamic spaces because it's always easier to point over there. And I think what all of this, or the, the kind of the general Me Too is forcing people to do is to, to focus on the place where they stand. And when we talk about the places where we all live and, and those uncomfortable spaces that we don't want to talk about, because it's easy to talk about the shit that happens over there rather than the shit that happens right here at home where we stand, what I insist we do is we talk about the universality of patriarchy. Because 
where religion comes in is it, 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 it's exactly what you were saying, Chrissy. It's this hierarchy that privileges male dominance, and that's what patriarchy is. Patriarchy is systems and institutions that privilege male, so they protect and enable and privilege male dominance. And what happens in the religious spaces especially is that the power of religion, the power of God, the, the sanctity of these sacred spaces are used to silence women, children, LGBTQ people, non-binary people, the people who don't have power. And so, and, and that's what makes it especially lethal. And that's what these people who, the, the, the men who sexually abuse us in these sacred spaces count on. The men who sexually assaulted me in Mecca during Hajj were counting on the fact that this is such a sacred space and that I would be too ashamed to say that this happened to me uh, during while I was performing the, the fifth pillar of my religion at the holiest site for Muslims. The Catholic priests who assault boys and girls count on the fact that no one would believe these children against the so-called men of God. The, the evangelical uh, pastors who abuse teenage girls and others are counting on the fact that they have such massive kind of rock star following that who would believe this 14-year-old girl against this man who is so loved and revered. So they bring to patriarchy this sanctity that they use to silence us. But at the end of the day, it's all patriarchy. In some cases, it's patriarchy with fascism on top. In other cases, it's faith patriarchy with God and religion on top. But at the end of the day, it's patriarchy. Do you think that we can have a different vision of God and religion? I guess to just follow up on that, do you think that kind of better non-patriarchal inclusive religion is, is something that's really ultimately possible? Well, I, I think in order to do that, we have to first of all overthrow the patriarchal God. We have to overthrow the, the, the religious thinking that was made by men and for men. Um, and I see people doing that. I see people talking about the divine feminine. I see people um, reassessing... I'll give you two examples. I go to Nigeria quite every year for a literary festival that happens in October called the RK Arts and Book Festival. And whenever I talk about religion there, they always tell me, Mona, you should focus more on Abrahamic religions because it's very clear what Abrahamic religions brought to Nigeria because in the Christian part of Nigeria, the British colonizers brought uh, Christianity and in the northern Muslim part of Nigeria, the Arab colonizers brought Islam. And my Nigerian friends and other friends from the continent will talk about the pre-Abrahamic religions that exist and continue to exist on the African continent that are not as patriarchal as the Abrahamic religions. Now, this is not to say that countries, be, you know, before the, the, the white and Arab colonizers came with these kind of like, you know, uh, bastions of feminism. But that is to remind us what Abrahamic religions brought. And what Abrahamic religions brought is this very patriarchal God that insisted on destroying the non-patriarchal gods and goddesses that existed before it. So I think in order to have that conversation, we have to overthrow the patriarchal God and start talking about the various manifestations of divinity. And, and, and I'd be interested to hear what you all think of that. The way I've been thinking about it and the way I've been seeing it is... The, because you have this patriarchal God and we have this patriarchal structure, that it is very tied to the rise of authoritarian governments worldwide, correct? And if we don't, if we don't remake this structure, I mean, I mean, we're, our pl planet is already in peril. And if we don't remake this structure and go, go back to previous models, then, then we're doomed. I mean, not to be negative, but... 
I mean, I'm a consummate pessimist, um, but uh, <laughs> I mean, my, my sort of current thoughts on this issue are that, you know, if you really kind of uh, get me in a corner and make me say what I think, I'll probably say that I think on the whole organized religion or maybe particularly organized monotheism does more harm than good. But I still very much believe in building bridges between uh, non-believers and progressive believers who can work together. So I think that shared values are more important than shared beliefs. I definitely know some very inclusive believers of, of different confessions. And so, you know, I don't want to alienate them, even if I have my doubts. And, and we also want to point out that, you know, paganism too, as appealing as it sometimes seems, can also be uh, patriarchal or virulently nationalist. Uh, the Nazis were interested in recovering the kind of Nordic paganism, and that's a project that continues, and you can even see it in some white supremacist groups in the United States today. Right. And I, yes, absolutely to both of what, what you um, said. And I think that um, one of the things that I touch on in The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls is this very privileged, very lazy and naive um, thing that people say when they tell people of faith, well, you know, all religions are patriarchal anyway, you should just leave. And I think that the, this mm -hmm. this thing you should just leave comes with so much privilege that the person saying it doesn't realize because not everyone mm -hmm. can leave and not everyone wants to leave. And on top of that, leave to where that is not patriarchal because one of the points that I insist on is patriarchy is everywhere. So I want to destroy it wherever it stands. And so in my book, I talk about um, Hindu feminists who are insisting on fighting patriarchy within the Hindu faith. I talk about Islamic feminists, and I am not an Islamic feminist. I keep Islam and feminism very far apart, but I talk about Islamic feminists like Amina Wadud, who's someone I admire greatly and who is a mentor of mine and who is often known as the woman imam because she led um, the first Friday prayer uh, where she, she was the imam of 50 women and 50 men, among whom I prayed um, in New York in 2005. So you have... Hindu feminists, you have Muslim uh, feminists, you have Christian feminists, Jewish fem feminists, feminists of all faiths who are saying we are going to fight patriarchy inside these faith traditions. And I, you know, to kind of like show solidarity to, to what they're saying and what you're both saying, I say, look, we have to fight patriarchy wherever it stands because in atheism, in paganism, like you said, I mean, like you look at the scandals that have happened among atheist circles, these men are also patriarchal shits, you know? So patriarchy is everywhere and we have to fight it everywhere. I also wanted to ask you if, uh, have you met some feminists from India? Have you worked with them? Have you traveled to India? And what do you know about, what do you have to say about patriarchy in India? Right. Well, I, I meet several because I also go to India quite frequently, um, Deepak. So, yes. Yeah, so so I've met, you know, a variety of, of feminists in, in India, not just um, feminists of the Hindu tradition or other faith traditions. But specifically in my book, I mention um, the case of several feminists who for years now have fought and were successful last year in getting the Indian Supreme Court to reverse the ban on women between the age of 10 to 50, often called uh, of menstruating age, from entering Hindu yeah. temples in India. And two women were successful um, in January of this year in, in entering the Sabramala temple in Kerala. So I, I write quite extensively about their case. The Indian government, the right-wing BJP, has scrapped Article 370, which gave Kashmir and Kashmir a special status, but it has been scrapped now. And there's a 
um, the whole entire state of Kashmir has been shut down, no communications and no, um, the life has come to a standstill. I wanted to know, I wanted to ask you what, what do you think of it? Yes, I, I think what's happening in India can be connected to what's happening in the United States, can be connected to what's right. happening in Israel, can be connected to what's mm-hmm. happening in Saudi Arabia. And this is what you were talking about, Deirdre, early, about this awful kind of toxic mix of uh, religion and authoritarianism. Because when you look at India, you see how Hindu nationalism has been fueling Modi, the, the Prime Minister Modi, and the BJP. And it was interesting that one of the biggest and fiercest opponents of this lift of the ban of women entering Hindu temples in India was the BJP. And many of their uh, supporters, men and women, were physically getting in the way and to prevent women, in Hindu women, from entering temples because they opposed this lifting of the ban by the Supreme Court. So when you see what Modi and the BJP are doing, and when you see what Trump and the white evangelicals are doing in in the United States, and then Israel with Netanyahu and and Jewish people, and Saudi Arabia with the Saudi royal family and Islam, you see how they marry authoritarianism with with religion and nationalism, and it's extremely dangerous. We could add Putin and uh, Russian Orthodox Christians Absolutely. Well. It, it really isn't. And this this is why I think, you know, I keep reminding everyone that regardless of whether you're religious or not, whether you're a theocracy, um, a two-party democracy like the United States, a parliamentary democracy like the UK, the various post-Eastern Bloc countries in Europe, um, a, a, a Jewish country like Israel, um, a, an absolute hereditary monarchy, monarchy like Saudi Arabia, What connects all of these countries is patriarchy. And this is why I insist on saying that patriarchy is the most dangerous thing today. Because if any of those other things were to be changed, like in the UK or the US or Israel or Saudi Arabia, what would remain is patriarchy. That's what connects all of them. China. China has been ruled by the Communist Party for 70 years. There there is no religion in China. It is the Communist Party, which ironically enough has become one of the most capitalist of entrepreneurs on earth today, but it is still patriarchy that fuses all of these countries together. And well, in China too, there's a, a serious fear of any sort of difference from the regime. Of course, there's a certain amount of tolerated uh, religious practice with registered churches and underground religious practice, but what they're doing with the Muslim Uyghurs in uh, Western China, who also live in, in Central Asia, putting them into re-education camps, Uh, because they don't believe that, given their religion, that they are assimilable, is absolutely horrifying. It really is. And, and, you know, this idea of people in concentration camps, this idea of people in cages, I think when we also start making those connections, because Australia has been putting migrants and asylum seekers in concentration camps offshore for years. The United States is, is, has people in concentration camps on the border with Mexico. Um, and as you were saying, Chrissy, in China with Muslims, in Xinjiang province. And I think when we when we make all those connections, we invariably then have to ask, what about the caging of people in so-called regular circumstances, which in the United States, again, is subject to a very racist criminal justice system, which sees mostly black and brown men incarcerated, not for being migrants, not for being so-called illegal, and no one is illegal, but for, for, for um, basically um, breaking laws that are made by this very um, racist criminal justice system. So I think we're standing at a moment right now in our history as human beings who care about 
justice in which we have to make those connections and and point to the racism to the patriarchy and to the the various forms of supremacies plural supremacies that are justifying the caging of human beings so um with with that in mind i think we could say you know things are not going especially well at the moment. So one question that I would want to address would be, how do we take this awareness that we want to continue to, to raise as well and this making of connections and turn it into uh, actionable policy? I mean, I spent my adolescence in a, in a, in a teen prison. You know, I, I think it is very, very important to make all these connections because there's also, you know, the CIA, secret sites, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But um, I... But I do think one of the things that I read in your book was that you say the most subversive thing a woman can do is talk about her life as if it really matters. But how do we – and I think that is true, and I'd love for you to expound upon that. But yeah, and then how do we make that Mm. policy? Well, I think to connect your question with Chrissy's question, I would answer with what I call the feminist – 3D or like three feminism in 3D and the three D's are um, uh, words that begin with D that I repeat a lot throughout the seven necessary sins for women and girls and they are defiance, disobedience and disruption because I'm often approached by many young women, uh, many queer people at the various events where I speak and they will ask me, you know, how how can I be a feminist, you know, on, on like in my day-to-day life? Sometimes I'll be asked, uh, you know, I can't join a protest either because I, I don't want to protest. I'm scared to protest. My parents won't let me protest. I can't afford to be arrested if I protest. You know, various uh, reasons because not everyone can be an activist, you know, with feet on the ground in a protest. So I will often tell people, try to find ways to practice feminism in 3D every day. So try to find a way to defy, disobey and disrupt the patriarchy every day. And that, I think, is what what that goes to the heart of the most subversive thing a woman can do is to talk about her life as if it matters, because it does. Because our day-to-day lives do matter. And I think that that daily reality of defying, disobeying, and disrupting is where we um, enact our own power, and we recognize that we don't have to wait for the state to act, because there is more than the state that is at stake here. Because that all feeds into what I call the trifecta of misogyny. Because we're not just fighting the state here, because the state's oppression against all of us is very obvious. But the state, together with the street and the home, oppress women and LGBTQ people and non-binary people. So I want us to find ways where we can dismantle this trifecta of misogyny, state, street and home. For those of us who don't have state power, we have power on the street and we have power at home. So how do you defy, disobey and disrupt the power of the street and the power at home. Because all of that is essential before we start talking changing policy. And then if we want to talk about changing policy, I think we have to move beyond this very lazy and naive, we need more women in power. Because then I have to ask, what kind of women are we going to put in power? Are we going to put women who are feminist in power? Because I want women who, who will be in power, who will disrupt and who will defy, disobey and disrupt patriarchy, not uphold patriarchy. Too often the bar is so low that all we want is a woman in power. I don't want Republican women who are going to uphold patriarchy. I don't want religious fundamentalist women who are going to be the foot soldiers. I don't want what I call the foot soldiers of patriarchy in power. They are just as dangerous as a man in power. I want someone in power who will defy, disobey and disrupt patriarchy, who will upend and, and destroy patriarchy, not uphold patriarchy. 
We want you in power, Mona. Ah, I'm going to rule the world, Deepak. <laughs> I would like to know um, how um, how do patriarchy and racism and capitalism delineate where women should be, and then how racism works in tandem with patriarchy to hold back students of color in schools. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of a huge thing, but I, I would really like you to address that issue because it's something that, you know, I'm a former school librarian and it's something that really means, means a lot to me. Right. You know, I think that the, the kind of work that we all do and the, the, the kind of work that we all care about is, is really honestly fucking exhausting because we're not fighting just one thing. And that's one of the reasons that in The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, I draw this image of patriarchy as an octopus. Because, and I say that the head of that octopus is patriarchy and the tentacles of the octopus are the various uh, kind of attendant oppressions that patriarchy uses. So depending on where you live, those, those tentacles could be capitalism, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, um, ableism, you know, a whole host, as I said, of of oppressions. And when you're a student of color in the United States, it's it's difficult and exhausting because you're fighting all of those things at once. I quote in my book a letter from a Latinx woman um, who um, she wrote a, an open letter to one of her high school um, advisors because this young woman wanted to go to UCLA and her high school advisor was a white woman who essentially said to her, aim lower. She said to her, I don't think you can get into UCLA. You should try to get into a community college. And this is not in any shape or form to this community colleges because I volunteered at a community college when I lived in Seattle. And I support all institutions of learning that open their doors to as many people, people as possible. But what, what was happening with this young woman, this Latinx woman, was that she said, I want to go to UCLA. And she would have been the first person in her working class Latinx community, Latinx family rather, to go to university. And this white uh, advisor in her high school essentially said to her, nope, this is too much, this is too high of an ambition for you. And I find that appalling. And they found, survey after survey has, has found, and I mentioned a few of these surveys in my book, that it's really important to have teachers of color in schools so that first of all, students of color can, can see someone who looks like them, who resembles them, in a position of learning and authority, but also to encourage their ambition because they've also found that white teachers believe in the ambition of white students more than in the ambition of students of color. Mm-hmm. So eventually this, this young woman found the kind of encouragement that she wanted from a Latinx male teacher. So this again goes to what I'm saying. It's not automatically, oh, all women are feminists, all women are great. I do not support a woman just because she's a woman. What kind of a woman is is this a feminist? And is this a feminist who recognizes the intersection of oppressions, this the tentacles that are all together working in tandem for that head of the octopus to strangle this Latinx woman student who wants to go to UCLA. So I think this is the challenge for for students of color, that they're fighting racism, they're fighting white supremacy, they're fighting capitalism, they're fighting misogyny, they're fighting queerphobia in its various forms, homophobia, transphobia. If they're disabled, they're fighting ableism. It's it's exhausting. So we, we have to create all of those spaces for them. And that's why I was saying that I love following Black Socialists of America, but by their own admission, 
they they have they are myopic when it comes to gender and that's why i i, I bring back the kombahi river collective which was put together by a group of black radical feminists several of whom were gay or bi several of all of whom recognized how all of these tentacles of the octopus patriarchy together work in tandem and how we have to fight all of these oppressions well uh mona thank you so much for uh taking the time to address all these issues with us today it's been really fascinating listening to you um and um it's it's really an honor to get to talk to you uh i was wondering if you could just go ahead and tell us some more information about where people can find you online um put in an, uh, a final sort of word for your new forthcoming book anything else that you would like to address absolutely first i want to thank you all chrissy deepak and didra because i really appreciate um the way that the conversation has covered patriarchy religion politics feminism you know the, the lives that we all lead we don't lead compartmentalized lives where today we're just going to talk about politics today we're going to talk about religion everything is political everything is feminist and i love the way that we've covered so many parts of the world and i especially appreciate that your podcast covers religion foreign policy patriarchy all of that so i'm 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 honored that i'm your first guest who is not a podcast host so thank you for having me and thank you so much and and then also where people can find me is i basically live on social media as you all three of you know because we follow each other so i'm at mona altahawi on twitter i'm at mona altahawi on instagram um i don't have time for facebook anymore so i've deactivated my account there but you know you can find me on facebook and instagram and my new book comes out on september the 17th the seven necessary sins for women and girls and it's my i i call it my molotov cocktail that i am throwing at patriarchy it is my manifesto to make patriarchy fear us and it's my manifesto to destroy patriarchy it's my manifesto to destroy patriarchy because if there's one thing i always begin and end everything with it is fuck the patriarchy <laughs> well, thank you Mona. So you heard it here September 17th. Get the uh, the seven necessary sins for women and girls by Mona El Sahawi. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. <laughs>